something as infinite as God, surely there are infinite ways of describing it. I credit those Eastern traditions with helping me see that. And yet, that was here all along also in Christian contemplative traditions. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Lon Young, originally from Michigan and studied music education and psychology at Brigham Young University, literature and creative writing at Utah State University, and is now a high school English teacher. He's also co-founder of Awakening Valley Sangha, a mindfulness community in Provo, Utah, and an ordained Zen Buddhist. Lon, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Steve. You came to my attention because of some really interesting blog posts you years ago that you posted, but I came across them, of kind of a melding of East and West religious or spiritual philosophy. I was just very excited to talk about that because we see quite a bit of mixing. Don't you see that today? I do. I do. I think there's a real hunger for what some of the Eastern spiritual practices have to offer us today. And interesting that there's a contemplative tradition in Christianity as well, but lots of us, meaning me, and maybe lots of our listeners, have not really been exposed to that in our Christian tradition. I hadn't realized it myself. In fact, it was in my journey to Eastern spirituality that I came to discover that my own root Christian tradition had this wonderful stream of contemplative practices too. I was really delighted. In fact, it was through looking into Zen Buddhism that I came to know Thomas Merton, for example. Catholic uh, priest and writer, philosopher. Right. And he had studied under a Zen master. Mm. And he really was exploring that intersection between the Christian contemplative movement and Eastern contemplative practices. I wonder if I could get just a little bit of background on your growing up. Did you grow up believing in God in a divine power? I sure did. I sure did. I felt very, very lucky. You know, at some point, I could relate to Rumi, the Sufi poet, who said, jars of spring water are not enough. Take me down to the river. I found, maybe in my 30s, a kind of thirsting for experiences closer to the source. But it wasn't because religion hadn't worked for me. In fact, it was because it worked so well (laughs) for me. You know, Richard Rohr talks about in the first half of our life, the need for building a container that can hold all that in the second half of life we're meant to fill it with. And I feel very, very lucky. My root tradition really helped me build a strong container. In fact, I think about the, the forms of religion, and it was precisely through those forms, the symbols, the sacraments, that I first came to experience that spring water that Rumi's talking about. Mm. So I feel very, very grateful for that. I suppose that at some point, I came to sense that it wasn't the jars themselves that had made the experience so precious. And certainly it wasn't the particular jars of my faith tradition that gave me any kind of special access to that experience. But I very much credit this foundation in this, you know, what Rohr says is the first half of life for helping me experience that. 
I think it's important, and, and one of the things religions can do so well is providing the, the containers, if you will, the jars of spring water. That's an interesting image. I like that. From what I've read about the first half of life and second half experience, it seems like there's a real need for certainty in black and white more in that first half. And then because life eventually hits us with all kinds of stuff that makes us wonder. And it's good to have an anchor point to hold on to. Sure. Yeah. I feel the same way. About 10 years ago, I had an experience. A big wind ripped through the neighborhood and a patch of roofing fell off my roof. Well, I went up there and did the repair with some patching tar. And when I stood up to turn around to come back down, I stopped right up there on the second story roof and looked out at the neighborhood. All of these backyards, you know, from that high, I could see into everyone's backyards, each of them kind of separated by these tidy wooden (laughs) fences. And it was spring. And the whole neighborhood was just ablaze with color. Inside one neighbor's backyard. It was clear they had planted some daffodil bulbs just blossoming now in someone else's yard, tulips. And looking over this fence, I'm seeing a crab apple tree, you know, in blossom. And someone else had flowering peach trees in my own backyard too. Very, very beautiful. And at that moment, I was really struck that each backyard hosted its own kind of beauty. And I thought about those fences. I have my own fence in my backyard. There's a kind of structure there Mm -hmm. that it provides. You know, and I think all religious communities want to define their spaces. They set up borders, fences, gates for letting people in, and sometimes gates for (laughs) (laughs) kicking people out. And they establish orthodoxies, and they worry about boundary maintenance. And I suppose that there's a kind of security in that. If I think of my own backyard, it does feel safer in there with these fences providing a kind of structure for me. So you're exactly right. There's something to that. And yet I carry that image with me of having this perspective up there on the second story and looking out and seeing these fences for what they are, but also recognizing that, you know, the sun passing through the sky. The sun doesn't regard these fences one bit. The sunlight is spilling across every backyard. And the rain and the sunshine and birds flitting in and out of these backyards, absolutely oblivious to these fences that we <laughs> spend so much time erecting. And, and I really was struck then and continue to be struck by how fences work, but also how all of that goodness transcends them. I try to carry that image with me. It goes a long way to kind of express how I've come to feel about all the different faith traditions. I think it's interesting. You use the word perspective, which I was going to say, this little shift in perspective allowed you to see something maybe a little bigger, or maybe I should say, see something very common for all humanity. And you know, Steve, we can't live on our roof. So (laughs) that day, 10 years ago, I had to walk back down the ladder into my particular backyard, inside that space defined by my particular fence, and and live. Mm. The way I heard it said once is, uh, and it was attributed to Buddha, we don't always know, but it said, if, if you want to find water, don't dig six one-foot wells, dig one six-foot well mm. to get to the water. 
So we do tend to settle somewhere because if we're flitting around and never pausing for a little deep digging, at some point you come back down off the roof. Yeah. There's water in all of those wells, but to really dig deep enough to find it in your own tradition, you you do need to sort of settle someplace. I appreciate that perspective. I've discovered that same thing for myself in this soul's longing for these unmediated experiences. I, I did a lot of exploration, particularly in Eastern traditions. Why Eastern traditions? What was the draw there? Well, probably because I felt space in the Eastern traditions. I had, in my own faith journey, had started finding that the categories and the the definitions weren't serving me as well. I needed, let's say, bigger containers, maybe even starting to question if the containers mattered at all. And I think in the East, there was a comfort level with setting aside labels, setting aside categories. In fact, I have always loved scripture. I found myself exploring the sacred texts in the East, including the Tao Te Ching. The very first verse warns us that the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. And I suppose that resonated with me because here the very starting point of wisdom in these Eastern traditions is the recognition that words are going to fail to adequately capture the experience. And it was the experience that mattered to me. Now, in my root tradition, some of the orthodoxies may have been less fruitful for me at the time. And at the time, I felt I needed some space when I could set aside categories and terms and labels. It served me well, too, as my own conceptions of God have shifted. It's really helped me to uh, be able to focus on the experience. Hmm. I think that's what the East does so well, Steve, is it honors the experience with kind of a a reticence to necessarily attach definitions to it. So the experience is hard to define. And I'm thinking in the West, sometimes we don't just enjoy the butterfly until we've captured it, killed it, and pinned it, and put it in a case. Sure. I mean, we definitely want to nail everything down. Yeah. Uh, But just to enjoy the living part of that without having to do that, for some reason that comes to mind. And, you know, something as infinite as God or as infinite as the divine, surely there are infinite ways of describing it, infinite ways of approaching that. And I credit those Eastern traditions with helping me see that. And yet, that was here all along also in, in Christian contemplative traditions, that same starting point, that it's this experience, direct, unmediated, that transcends language. And language will always be inadequate to capture it. Just living into that has been really helpful for me. So I have brought up the idea of meditation to, for instance, a couple of my children at one point, And they said, that sounds like the most boring thing <laughs> possible. What, I'm supposed to sit and not think of anything? Yeah. I said, I don't think that's the point. I think it's learning to observe. But even though I know lots of leaders in various Christian churches who have said, take time to ponder and meditate. Sure. But I think lots of us hear that as, don't forget your prayers. Mm. Mm-hmm. So could we talk about contemplation for a minute? Sure. So what in, for instance, in the Zen tradition, in setting meditation, what is a practitioner seeking? 
Or is, am I missing the point? Well, one of the things that Zen meditation has in common with Christian contemplative meditation is just creating a space without needing to manage that mm-hmm. space or control it in that space. And I practice centering prayer as a, as a Christian. One of my practices is centering prayer. And it has so much in common with my Zen meditation practice too. We simply show up and allow. There's a kind of receptive awareness that happens. So a Christian centering prayer, that might be not showing up with the laundry list, but just being aware and trying to be in the presence of God? Sure. I think of this invitation from Jesus to abide, abide in me mm-hmm. and I in you. And I think of how often we're encouraged to be still and know that I am God and to rest. I think, too, of this wonderful, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, listen to these images that follow. He invites me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And it seems as though there's this divine invitation to rest, to set aside our preoccupations, to set aside our agendas, Mm. and just abide in that, that abundance. And then the conditions are ready where he can restore our soul. So I think in the Christian contemplative tradition, we really have an opportunity to accept this invitation to be still and know to experience, and to just simply abide in this divine presence. Lon, you talked about contemplative prayer or meditation in the Zen tradition, which is an individual act, or it's an individual with God, and yet you've helped to found a community. So why a community for this solitary act? What what happens? What does it do? Yeah. You know, mindfulness practice can be done on a cushion in, in someone's private room, but there's a real power in meeting together in community, not only in developing a stronger, uh, richer meditation practice, but there's something about community itself that's really important in this practice, recognizing that we're not separate, but that we're a part of something. Mm-hmm. Sangha means community, and so it was a real blessing to watch as our little sangha, it's been together about five years now, as it's grown, not only in numbers, but in that sense of community. One of the core insights of the Zen tradition I'm in is the insight of interbeing. I'm ordained in the order of interbeing, and it's the recognition that we are interdependent Meeting together as a sangha each week has really, really been helpful. Now, some people come for the meditation. Maybe they're coming to relax or, you know, for stress management. Others come for some of the insights that Buddhism can offer them, but maintain their primary faith tradition already. And some of those who come identify as Buddhists. But I have to say, one of the things I'm most gratified about is that often people will come and they discover not that they want to step aside from their religion and become Buddhists, but there's something about the practice that revitalizes their own primary Mm. faith tradition. I love that. In fact, I got a letter a couple of years ago from a young couple. They were going to a private university, and they were 
struggling to kind of navigate some difficulties in their religion. They started coming to our sangha, and they found that it was a safe space to continue engaging in spirituality while they were just sort of figuring things out. Hmm. The letter that came to me came after they had moved away, and it said, thank you so much, not for introducing us to Buddhism, but for helping us reconnect, eventually reconnect to Christianity again. That meant a lot to me. Mm. I feel like if our sangha is not finding a way to help people enliven what's already working for them, then we're not doing what we ought to be doing. I've quoted before, but the head of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, has said, don't use what I teach to become Buddhist. Use it to become a better whatever you are. Sure. That's an interesting connection. Yeah. So I have spoken to people who were invited, for instance, to a yoga class that I went to in my church building, my Christian faith, and a lady who lived in the neighborhood every morning that was kind of a service she wanted to do to teach yoga. And there were people who were worried that they were compromising their religion somehow because yoga had connotations or connections with Hinduism. She was not teaching that, but she was helping people physically be better and more aware of themselves and how they felt and all of that. I think sometimes the unknown causes fear. Sure. I wonder if you would talk about ways that the Eastern and Western philosophies actually have commonalities. Mm, yeah. I have really found that. I had worried at first because, as I mentioned before, my core Christian tradition was so gratifying to me and so important to me. I worried that the more I explored Buddhism, for example, that that might somehow take me away from from that root tradition, but it was just the opposite, just the opposite. The deeper I practiced, the more I found myself returning back to Christianity and discovering almost for the first time, I think of this line from T.S. Eliot, the end of all our exploring is to arrive at our starting point and know the place for the first time. Mm. So that's what my Zen practice has done for me with Christianity. It has enlivened it. And I can speak to different ways it's enlivened this. My Zen practice really is helping me, I hope, helping me become a better Christian. Let me give you, maybe start with one example. Sure. My Zen practice is helping me practice a spirituality of subtraction instead of addition. Subtraction instead of addition. Now, what do I mean? Well, in the past, I used to have this idea that if I could add maybe one more virtue— or memorize one more scripture passage, or maybe squeeze in one more hour of devotion or of service, then I would be a, a more holy person. I would be more worthy of God's love. But what if, instead of adding something to become more holy, I learned to let go of all of the things that were getting in the way? Hmm. Here's a parable that's helped me understand this. The parable goes like this. There was an, a sculptor in, in ancient India, and he was famed throughout the land for these exquisite, lifelike sculptures of elephants made from granite. And one day the king himself came to the studio of this artisan and said, please explain how you do this. You're known throughout the land. I'm here to commission a work, but tell me about your process. And the sculptor says, well, the block of granite arrives at my studio, 
And at first I do nothing, absolutely nothing. I just sit, I study it from every possible angle. And at first he confessed it just seemed like a shapeless block of granite. But when he would bring his powers of concentration to it and be still, he began to perceive inside this block of granite the elephant. And over time, he began to see more clearly, with more clarity, this elephant present in there, stirring, wanting to be free. And he said the rest of it was easy. Then he just simply picked up his chisel and he chipped away everything that wasn't the elephant. And what emerges is this wonderful regal elephant. And I thought about that. I thought, what if we're this block of granite and you're this block of granite, everyone I know? And what if I were able to perceive this inherent wholeness, this inherent goodness intrinsic to our nature? Then the spiritual practice would be one of subtracting all of the things that are obscuring that of what's whole already, of what's already perfect, letting that fall away. Now, the Christian contemplatives, they tend already to focus on, or kind of their starting point is, this original goodness. And kind of they, they'll speak of a divine DNA, if you will. Or I like the phrase, infused with the light of Christ. Mm. And this original goodness. And in the Zen tradition, too, we have the term Bodhi nature or Buddha nature, which speaks to this capacity that we all share, a capacity for awakening, for clear seeing, and especially this capacity to relate to one another with a very natural compassion. You described in something you wrote moments where you felt that you were able to let go of ego. Mm. I wanted to read a few of these because they were so beautiful to me, and they sort of tied in with what I would think of as inspiring moments in my life. You talk about drifting in a kayak with sea otters in Monterey Bay, partaking of the sacrament or communion, sitting in a field of birds, the first few minutes of the Adagio and Rodrigo's Concierto de Aranjuez, and you go on, but they connect with nature. Mm -hmm. That seems a common thing. I'm thinking of St. Francis of Assisi, for, sure. for instance, yeah. that one of the problems with our modern world or the ills that we experience from modern life, even though it has many blessings, is a separation from the natural world. Does that enter into your practice or is this just something at these moments you just became aware of? The natural world is a wonderful place to be reminded that we're not separate and isolated. Mm. I think we understand intuitively that we're part of this. We stand in awe, but we stand as part of. There's an ecology here, and we're part of it. And I think natural spaces are spaces where we can more intuitively perceive the reality, really, that we are part of the universe. Einstein has a wonderful quote. He mentions in a letter that human beings are part of a whole called the universe. But then he goes on to say, humans being who we are, we tend to think of ourselves as separate. Our feelings and our thoughts and ourselves as somehow separated from the rest. Mm. And he says that's a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase? I, I need to write down this quote. <laughs> An optical delusion of our consciousness. And he says it creates a kind of prison 
for us. Mm -hmm. When we think of ourselves as separate. That idea of prison that Einstein uses captures this alienation and this sense of separation. Well, as he points out, it's only an illusion that we are separate in truth. But he says there's a, there's a solution to it. And I think he diagnoses the problem pretty well in describing it as a prison. Think how confining it is. Think how small, how shrinking to the soul it is to only have concern for ourselves, maybe a few friends and family. Einstein says our task must be to widen our circle of compassion until it takes in every living being and the whole of the universe. Oh, you mean like God does. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And what, a, what an image of liberation. Think of the space of a heart whose concern is not just for oneself or one's family or tribe, but it's limitless, it's boundless. And this comes back to how my Zen practice helps me in my Christian practice. You know, this notion of an ever-expanding circle of concern really speaks to Jesus's invitation. In the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we're invited not just to love the lovable, everyone can do that, but there's this invitation to love even the unlovable and to pray for them, even the ones that are spitefully using us. Buddhism has practices to cultivate that kind of loving kindness. Mm. So my highest aspiration as a Christian is to love without exception, without boundary. And Buddhism offers some tools. There's a loving kindness practice that Buddhists have been practicing for 2,500 years. And the practice starts like this. It starts by imagining in your mind's eye someone you already care for someone around whom you just naturally feel love towards, and then wishing them well, wishing them loving kindness. And then, you know, now the heart's just warming up and it's ready for the next step, is to reach out with that same wish to maybe your neighbors, your coworkers, and to offer them this same wish for well-being. But don't stop there. The practice moves on then to neutral people, to strangers, but it also moves you to think of those people that are challenging to love. Maybe they've hurt you, uh, and now you really generate that kind of loving kindness that can encompass them too and embrace them. And you can imagine these concentric circles of loving kindness radiating out. There's a, a Buddhist sutra, a scripture, that talks about the importance of developing this kind of loving kindness. And a word that shows up over and over and over again in this sutra is boundless, boundless, limitless. And I really treasure this practice because it helps me more fully realize this invitation that Jesus gives me to love everybody without exception. It's been very beautiful to me to see intertwining connections of these various traditions. But of course, not every aspect of them intertwines. And have you found points of conflict? Yeah, I absolutely have. I like to think of it as a kind of dynamic tension. It can be generative. Now, it was simpler when I practiced just in one <laughs> faith tradition, for sure. But there is something generative about living both of these traditions. 
And in a way, they give me two ways of understanding the world. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say there's a religion called algebra and a religion called geometry. Now, I don't know how you feel about math, but stay with me, Steve. I, I will step <laughs> forward in faith. <laughs> algebra, let's say, develops in the Muslim world and geometry in the Greek world. Now, to say that they're basically the same is to kind of miss the point. Really, algebra is solving one set of problems, and geometry is solving another set of problems. So someone who only knows algebra will never be able to figure out the volume of a cylinder or enjoy pi. <laughs> and someone who only knows geometry isn't going to be able to solve for x. And so you see how both of these traditions are solving different problems. Hmm. And so I feel really, really lucky that these wisdom streams are both flowing into my life. I'm learning from them. They're usually very mutually supportive of one another, but it's their differences that I also prize because sometimes those differences are really helpful in addressing different kinds of problems that show up in my spiritual life. I love your analogies. It's a good thing you have spent a lifetime as a teacher because you were clearly born to teach and to share. I appreciate that. So I tried this app that I can put on. It rings a little bell. I hear the sound of waves. And then I practice mindfulness. And I'm trying to figure this out. At first, I thought, this means I shouldn't be thinking about anything. And then, no, it means I should become aware of what I'm thinking and get some distance. So being able to observe emotions as they sort of float on the stream, come and go, thoughts as they come and go, without being so attached or anxious or something like that. So the word mindfulness gets thrown around so much these days that I'm not sure we know what it really means. Will you yeah. talk to me about that? You know, mindfulness for me has come to mean just arriving, showing up in the here and the now, hmm. here in this body, now in this moment. So meaning not worried about the future or still ruminating on past sure. experiences. Now, it's a wonderful endowment we have as humans to be able to plan for the future and to reflect on the past. But there is a kind of scattering of our energy if that's what we're always doing. And there's a kind of energy, a focused, centering, grounding energy that happens when we show up now, here in this body, now in this moment. And that can be really, really helpful to do from time to time throughout the day. You know, I think of something that the Austrian-born Trappist monk, Brother David Steindl Rost, said. He spoke of this idea of being pulled forward and dragged back to the past. He said, many times I'm 49% ahead of myself, stretching out towards what's coming up. And I'm 49% behind myself, dragged back by something that's already happened. And he pointed out, that means there's very little of me left <laughs> in the present. <laughs> And, you know, I think if we want to be available to God or to the divine or to a beloved friend or our spouse or even to ourselves, we need to show up and we need to be fully here with them. You know, we can talk of the omnipresence of God and the eternal quality of God, but we only can experience God in the here and now. Whatever else we might say about God— that experience comes in the here 
and in the now. And if we're not here, we miss it. It reminds me of those uh, contests where they say, you must be present to win. <laughs> we have these opportunities. Do you have that on the wall in your <laughs> Sure, <sangha? laughs> must be present to win. We have these wonderful opportunities all the time, whether it's the, the rainbow or children's laughter or an encounter with the divine. They're only available in the present moment. And if we're not here, we miss it. For an upcoming episode, we're looking for your stories. If you have a story about how art impacted your understanding of a religious belief or strengthened your faith in some way, share it with us. Simply record your story on your phone's voice memo function and send the recording to ingoodfaith at byu.edu. If you have suggestions for people who have a great story to tell about their faith journey, email us ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a five-star review or comment where you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in good faith.